You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My, a bi-weekly podcast about healthcare law in the United States, brought to you by the Healthcare Group at Kroll & Mooring. I'm Pyle Nanavetti. And I'm Joe Records, and we are thrilled today to have Jacinta, all of us, in the studio to talk about compliance. Thanks, Joe and Pyle. I'm thrilled to be here, and I think this is a very important topic and is very timely. The U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division just recently released an updated version on their evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance this past April. And because of that, there's been a lot of commentary on the importance of compliance programs and how the government is looking at them. Can we talk about in what way and for what reason the government would even get involved in a private company's compliance program? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. From a government standpoint, and this goes to the heart of at least the criminal division guidance, it plays a role in a number of different factors, but three primary ones. One, how are they going to make a decision as to whether certain charges should be brought against a company? Charges Two, like under the anti-kickback statute or? Sure, it could be under the anti-kickback statute or it could be under any statute. This guidance doesn't just apply to the healthcare industry. So it, the anti-kickback statute, which specifically applies to healthcare, is certainly a key consideration for probably a lot of the listeners of this podcast. As you know, I work in both the healthcare group as well as the government contracts group, and this guidance is equally applicable to government contractors, whether in the healthcare industry or not. So for example, sticking specifically to the healthcare industry, this guidance is going to be important to anybody doing business with the government, whether that's in submitting claims for payment for healthcare services, let's say from a hospital hospice, home health, inpatient rehab facilities, ambulatory surgery centers, you have that sort of category, as well as for companies or nonprofits, right, who are receiving government grants or government contracts. Sure. So CMS gives a lot of grants, and I guess probably other agencies within HHS give a lot of grants to not just provider entities, but lots of different kinds of entities out there that may or may not have very robust compliance programs. That's right. And even outside of HHS, I mean, there are other agencies that may be reviewing a company's compliance program or for which your company is certifying that you have an adequate compliance program. And that could be with work that you're doing with the Veterans Administration or with the Defense Health Agency under DOD. So grants are coming from HHS, grants are coming from other agencies, from DOD's Defense Health Agency and potentially from the VA to healthcare companies or entities that are healthcare adjacent. A lot of times, nonprofit service providers or other types of entities that may have, I assume that hospital systems and other sophisticated providers have pretty robust compliance departments and programs, but maybe some other grant recipients would not. Yeah. So, sort of backing up from that question, I think it's a great point. One, Different companies are going to have different size compliance programs, and you may have very sophisticated players, health systems that produce and submit a lot of claims, and they've been in the business for a long time. And likely, a lot of them will have more robust compliance programs. We've noticed in sort of this environment of consolidation that the issue tends to be with those types of companies or nonprofits, that there's a compliance function that maybe needs to be better integrated as you're acquiring hospitals, for example, or other services. And that's something that takes time and making sure that you have the same culture and also a program that's consistent 
throughout and that addresses the risks as you're growing. But secondly, you're going to have other entities that are smaller and maybe are either new players or have less resources. And the message, which is a good message from the Department of Justice, as well as from other entities monitoring compliance, for example, the OIG at HHS, as well as various associations like the American Health Lawyers Association, the Healthcare Compliance Association, and the Association of Healthcare Internal Auditors, just to name a few, is that compliance programs are supposed to be tailored to the particular entity, both from a size, a risk, a resource profile. So it's okay. Not everybody has to have the same program in order for it to be helpful, both in defending a potential investigation, but also in saving your company money. Tell me more about the environment of consolidation. I've been hearing more and more about providers in particular and and hospital systems and other types of provider entities merging and coming together in sometimes clinically integrated networks, sometimes under a corporate umbrella. I assume because healthcare is such a heavily regulated and increasingly regulated industry that it's becoming more resource intensive to be a healthcare company. Mm -hmm. As entities are getting bigger via consolidation, what are some issues that come up in the compliance space? Sure. So I agree 100% with what you're saying in terms of the complexity that is arising with the larger health systems and in consolidation. From the compliance standpoint, the issue ends up being a lot of times a compliance program may have been varied in how it was implemented as a system is acquiring different entities. There may be different risks, and so the compliance program was tailored to something that's very precise that now needs to be raised. So for example, if you're a hospital system and now you have a home health component, the compliance program that you had in place before may not address some of the risks that are in home health or similarly with hospice. Further than that, just from a board standpoint, how the board oversight, which is a critical component in compliance programs and demonstrating that they're not just something that's on paper and on the shelf, it's important to have your boards aware of what is being done from a compliance standpoint. And that includes, hey, here's what we're mapping out for the next year. These are the areas in which we're auditing, which should include Let's just take, we'll stick with the hospital example, which should include claims, but as well as auditing against certain policies and procedures that you have as part of your compliance program. So you have this element of looking out, and this is sort of perspective, where this is how we're planning for the next year. But your board should be aware of what incidents were found when you audited the different components. What are some of the issues with our claims? Are we overpaying certain claims by facility, by certain code, by physician? Do we have policies and procedures that need to be dusted off? I know we've worked together and found that one of the worst things that you can do actually is to have a bunch of policies in place that no one is actually following through on. That's right. It's evidence pretty much immediately that you've got a paper compliance program, right? Not something that anyone in the company is taking seriously. And that's one of the factors that's looked at across guidance, including the recent evaluation of corporate compliance program guidance from DOJ. Going back to the consolidation question that you started with, that's some of the issues. One thing, though, that people don't think of a lot and the value of a compliance program is at the time prior to acquisition. If you are a selling company 
it is helpful for you to be able to demonstrate that you've had a good compliance program because then your potential buyer feels greater comfort about the types of liabilities that they're incurring. And similarly, if you are the buyer, then you should be asking in diligence the types of questions to get at, hey, what type of compliance program do we have? Not just policies and procedures, but things that actually demonstrate, was this stuff applied? That's an issue that we see in transaction diligence. We're usually on the buyer side, and all the time we're looking for compliance programs. And in many, if not most cases, we're noting in a diligence memo that the compliance program could probably use a little updating, particularly where we're talking about an entity that is about to significantly grow in size as a result of the acquisition. Mm -hmm. So going back to our original topic, could you talk more about the new guidance released from the Department of Justice in April about how corporate compliance programs should be evaluated? Certainly, yeah. So this particular guidance, I wouldn't say added much that's new. It's certainly restructured in the way it's being presented, and it harmonizes some of the prior guidance that was released from the DOJ Criminal Division. And as you reference, Pyle, this is among a lot of other guidance that different agencies put forth. For example, HHSOIG has different guidance on corporate compliance programs, and they've issued various variations that some are specific to inpatient hospitals, some are specific to hospice, and you can go through a number of different versions of that going back in time for quite a bit. With respect to this particular guidance, it's restructured to get at three questions, and this is aimed at prosecutors who are making decisions about whether charges should be brought, what types of penalties should be applied monetarily, as well as whether or not a company needs to have a monitor going forward or whether or not they have to have other reporting obligations. So the range of outcomes. So let's say the Department of Justice comes in to investigate what a company has in terms of a compliance program and they decide that it's not good enough. What are the tools on the table for DOJ to use? You mentioned criminal penalties, fines, having a monitor in place. What are the possible negative outcomes for a company that's under scrutiny from DOJ? So a bad outcome for a lot of companies may just be not even in the criminal context, but just to give an example in the civil context, you may be responding to or under investigation by DOJ civil division. And as a result of that, even if you settle, the Office of Inspector General at HHS will have a say in whether or not you will be subject to what's called a corporate integrity agreement. And that corporate integrity agreement itself has very onerous obligations. You're now listed as an entity that has a CIA, which is public. On the outside, certainly would be if you're subject to criminal penalties on the individual basis, which could be the board or other C-suite individuals who could be held responsible, criminally responsible for various charges, including violations of the anti-kickback statute but also monetary penalties that can be extremely exorbitant. These are generally worst-case scenarios in that we're already talking about cases where the government is investigating, and compliance is important not just for those instances. Certainly it is like an insurance policy in case those things happen, but it's important in other contexts as well. For example, in the transactional context, 
in the context of handling internally different individuals who may feel like you're not listening to them. A lot of what results in government investigations are employees who feel like they weren't listened to. And having a good compliance program can prevent those individuals from talking to the government in the first place because they realize that the company has taken their concerns seriously. And in fact, it could even prevent the government from starting an investigation. That's exactly right. And it's something that a lot of people wonder, how does that work from a mechanic standpoint? If the government isn't investigating, how do they know what my compliance program is? And instead, the way it works is individuals who may feel like there's something in their department that's not going right. For example, maybe a, a physician, let's take a physician billing issue. Somebody thinks of physicians overbilling, whether it's their upcoding or they're including additional time. And that person calls their compliance hotline, which, by the way, is something that's important. Regardless of the size or resources of your company, you should have some sort of independent line that allows employees to report these concerns. But going back to the original hypothetical, you have somebody who observes this conduct, they're concerned, and they're like, that's not fair, right? Healthcare is expensive if we have people cheating the system. It's worse for everybody. To prevent that, that person reports it. They call the compliance hotline, and then they never hear anything. And now we shifting gears. Let's say you're on the compliance side and you receive it. The importance of having a good compliance program here and also communicating back within reason that the complaint has been looked at is to make sure that you chase it down. You investigate whether or not the complaint has warrant, whether there's upcoding or additional time, something that's resulting in higher fees to be received by the institution. And because you went through that, and if you communicate back to the individual who reported it that this has been looked into, you can also provide some sort of high-level explanation as to why it's not a problem. You've prevented a potential relator. You've prevented somebody who's thinking, oh, you didn't listen to me. And obviously, there can be other reasons. We all know there can be other reasons motivating why an individual might become a relator. But that's one, and it's an important one, that we've found through the course of doing a lot of internal investigations with different clients at different stages to prevent and minimize that potential. You want to keep your employees gruntled. <laughs> Definitely. Very gruntled. Right. Very you don't gruntled. want disgruntled. Employees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I agree that's a very important element of a compliance program. Is that something that you would find in some of the guidance that's issued by the DOJ or other agencies? Or how do companies actually know the specific elements to put inside their compliance program? That's a great question. It is in both the DOJ guidance. There's three different questions that they pose, really for prosecutors to pose, but sort of on the consuming side of this to guide companies in how they design their compliance program and how it's going to be looked at as to whether or not it's implemented appropriately. And the first question is, is the corporation's compliance program well designed? The second question is, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? And the third question is, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? On the well-designed front, which is what your question is going to, there's a number of different factors in this guidance, and I'll give some examples. All compliance programs should start with a risk assessment. And all that means is a company is looking at 
their particular environment and how they're set up. This is both from a regulatory standpoint, from a business standpoint, and from an incorporation standpoint. There are different elements that might result in potential noncompliance. So on the risk assessment piece, a lot of times different clients will ask us to look at their particular place in the market and help them with the risk assessment. It can be helpful both from an experience standpoint as well as to have a third party. A lot of times the initial risk assessment results are presented to the board and they guide how a compliance program is designed for the upcoming years. And a lot of times clients will, they like to have sort of third parties who are backing them, especially on the compliance side, saying, hey, this is something that's important and necessary and not just a cost. When you say place in the market, correct me if I'm wrong, what I think you mean is that for a hospital versus for a laboratory versus for a hospice, the compliance programs are and should look different. And an evaluation of those compliance programs is necessarily going to have different results and be looking for different elements in the compliance program depending on kind of what the entity is and what they do. Is that right? That's exactly right. And even broader than that, right, if you're just receiving government grants and maybe you're not you may not be submitting any other types of claims to the government, but under a grant or under a government contract. They're going to have very different requirements as well as different regulations that apply. But even within those, it can be, are you a nonprofit or a for-profit? Just that structure alone is going to have a bearing on how you're going to want to design your compliance program, as well as how many employees do you have? Do you have multiple locations? What types of sensitive information do you have? How are you collecting it? All of those things will play a role in how you perform a risk assessment and determine what your targets should be. What are the other elements that go into a well-designed compliance program? On the policies and procedure front, DOJ gives a number of different factors about they should be designed well, comprehensive, accessible. And in addition to those elements, who is in charge of ensuring that the policies and procedures are revised as necessary, making sure that what their conduct is is in line with those policies and procedures. In other words, gatekeepers and individuals who are responsible for the actual operational integration of the policies and procedures. Just to sort of round out the different design elements, you also have training and communications, which is fundamental to any compliance program. It's just a matter of determining how much training, what the training should be on, and the best way to communicate that tailored to your specific organization. And with respect to the hotline, that there's some sort of confidential reporting, even if it's not a hotline, let's say instead it's an email, some way you want to have the lowest barrier and what makes sense for your company for individuals within that company to be able to report, hopefully to an independent individual who has minimal potential conflicts, to hear that and investigate it. And then rounding out the design elements is third-party management, specifically DOJ. And this is, like I said, this isn't really anything new to anybody in the compliance space, but there needs to be a level of diligence as well as monitoring of different vendors you're using and third parties. And uh, So a company can't just say, oh, we have a vendor that does this and then not investigate anymore what their processes are. That's exactly right. There's a number of cases that some of that, to varying degrees, depending on the set of facts, and it can be very fact-specific, but where you as the contractor, and let's say in, in the case, if it's literally a subcontractor in a government contract, 
absolutely as the prime contractor or as the prime grantee, you may end up being liable. And we've seen cases of this where even if it was one of your contractors, especially in an instance of a government contract or a grant, and you have different subcontractors or subrecipients or subawardees, in either of those contexts, if they are not compliant and you did not detect it, and as a result, you end up submitting claims to the government that are false in one way or another, there's been different liability that can near to you as the prime. But also, even in the context of a hospital submitting claims, there's a number of vendors that usually hospitals rely on for that. And one of those vendors, they tend to be claims editors. And it's not necessarily going to pass muster if your explanation is, well, this was a problem because the vendor who's doing our claims editing didn't put the necessary algorithm in place to prevent claims from dropping that had wrong modifiers, which resulted in excess payment. So it's fine to have vendors, but the board can't wash its hands of the obligation to ensure compliance. Absolutely. And depending on where you are, vendors are fine. You just have to make sure that you have some reasonable level of diligence prior to entering into the relationship and some monitoring. And then the last design element is in the merger and acquisition process and making sure that your compliance program accounts for some due diligence on the front end, integration once the merger or acquisition occurs, and something that enables there to be a connection from diligence to implementation. So things that maybe you picked up in diligence that they've actually been addressed. So Jacinta, in your experience, what are some of the greatest hits of traps for the unwary or problems that come up where companies are surprised by gaps in their compliance programs? In terms of traps for the unwary, a lot of times what can be difficult, and this again is in the transactional piece, it can be not updating or providing enough resources to harmonizing the different compliance functions across a newly acquired entity. There's other traps, for example, having the policies and procedures in place, but having them not align with what the company is actually doing. So if you're saying one of the things that Pyle and I have seen, and not infrequently, is people will say, well, this was aspirational. We wanted to do this training quarterly. And in fact, people may not be doing that training even annually. It's better to revise your policy to mirror what's actually occurring than to state an aspirational goal that looks better on paper. So my weekend to-do list can include some aspirational elements, but the compliance program should not. That's correct. I heard a lot of your weekends, Joe, are (laughs) aspirational. (laughs) There's some other traps that can happen. A lot of it can be you may have a compliance department that's great. And in the sense of you have a report, it's investigated, but none of that ends up being communicated up to the board. And that can be problematic. There's a lot of guidance out there, for example, OIG from HHS in conjunction with a couple of different associations, the American Health Lawyers Association, the Healthcare Compliance Association, and the Association of Healthcare Internal Auditors. In 2015, they came out with practical guidance for healthcare governing boards on compliance oversight. And you can see specifically with OIG, you know, this may not be criminal, this may not be DOJ involvement at all, but a lot of enforcement comes out of HHS OIG and the healthcare industry. 
And you can see what their expectation is in terms of boards being involved from the design portion of a compliance program and the basis for it, including the risk assessment, all the way through implementation and investigations that occur because of either reports or because of routine monitoring, right? A compliance program should not just be flagging what's reported. It should be proactively trying to suss out potential areas of noncompliance. The last trap that I'll mention is a lot of times people can forget that just because an investigation, if it's done internally, is done confidentially and internal compliance departments may state that at all, you know, their interviews. But ultimately, if the government does come knocking or there is a relator, for whatever reason that there might be involvement, all of that information would have to be produced in response to a subpoena or a civil investigative demand or other forms in which the government may be requesting information. And so a lot of times, depending on what the complaint is, we will counsel our clients to think, is this something that from a resource standpoint, we should be handling internally? Or is this something that we should be looking to an outside third party, specifically outside counsel to, in order to preserve and make sure that we're, we're conducting a privileged investigation? So when does a company lawyer up? When do they need to go to outside counsel to assist with evaluation of the compliance program or investigation? Sure. So aside from the context of wanting to perform your investigation under privilege, other reasons, even if a company has a robust compliance function, it may make sense to have outside counsel depending on the sensitivity surrounding it. A lot of times a compliance department, depending on who is particularly involved, especially the higher up the chain you go in a department, if you're at the C-suite level in particular, but even lower down, depending on the structure of the institution, you may want to have a third party, even if you are independent, but just to have backup in what your conclusions might be or where you think this is heading, that would be a reason to do it. What's your key takeaway for our listeners about this recent DOJ guidance? This is important. And if you're met with the view that compliance is just a cost center, it's not. And this guidance makes that clear, both as an insurance policy to potential criminal repercussions, as well as, as we've talked about, different civil implications, or even things just at not DOJ involvement, but OIG involvement, and in preventing relators, as well as sometimes your compliance functions not only are they detecting overpayments, but they're detecting underpayments. And it can play a critical role also in making sure you're getting accurate revenue realization. That's a really great selling point for compliance programs. Any last words to conclude? So I'll conclude in saying this. There may be a variety of different types of people who are listening to this coming from different institutions, rather, who have various levels of sophistication in in-house compliance departments and investigations, et cetera, regardless of the level you're at. And maybe you think, hey, we're unlikely to face government inquiry for X, Y, and Z reason. We don't have any disgruntled employees, or we're incredibly sophisticated already. I would just encourage you to look with fresh eyes in light of this guidance. Is there ways that we can improve our compliance program? And we're happy to bring our experience to bear in that endeavor. One of the things that I don't like about a podcast is it can't, it's not interactive like a webinar. And so for anyone hearing this, if you have any questions, there's no question that 
isn't worth asking. And we would love to be able to provide any sort of thoughts based on our experience in the compliance field. And I think we'll leave it there. Jacinta, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight on compliance. Pleasure speaking with you both. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. <laughs>